Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. And I'm Eric Klein. And I'm Paul Reismandel. On today's show, we're going to take a look at Native Americans' use of sound technology during radio's earliest days and how that inspired and led to the flourishing Native media landscape, including tribal radio stations. Our guest, Josh Garrett Davis, is associate curator at the Autry Museum and recently completed his PhD dissertation on this topic. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And as someone sort of working in the field of Native American studies, it, it's sort of, I, I often start by sort of acknowledging that I'm here on Tongva lands in, in Los Angeles um, and that, uh, you know, I... At my, at my job, we work with Tongva uh, community members and educators on a lot of topics, and the uh, ha, a, Native people from a, a lot of places have taught me um, a lot of these things. But sort of to sort of make that first and foremost in terms of sort of locating myself here uh, in Los Angeles. Thank so. you so much. I I appreciate that, and I'm I'm really excited to have you on the show talking about this dissertation work which the title of your project, Resounding Voices, Native Americans and Sound Media, 1890 to 1970. It's really right up, right up our alley at Radio Survivor because we're interested not only in the early days of radio, but also in how some communities have been left out of the historical narrative. And we've talked about how that has related to women in radio, people of color in radio, and even student broadcasters. So... Mm-hmm. This is certainly the case for Native Americans, and I'd love to ask you just first of all why it was important for you to research these very early contributions by Native American people to radio and sound. Yeah, I mean, I I did start from uh, an interest in the present day, I think. Uh, I grew up in South Dakota, where probably about 10% of the population is Native, and um, and had spent some time on various reservations um, there on kind of both through friends of my dad and, and through, I became interested in Native American history in college like 20 years ago. So I had been around um, Indian country, as you say, as they say, uh, which is kind of the, the way of describing, it's a legal construct, like in, in, uh, you know, federal laws, Indian country, but it's also sort of a vernacular for sort of the the landscape uh, that Native people control, whether you'd say that that is the whole continent or the specific places where there's a density of, of Native communities. So so in, in Indian country, I had noticed just listening to the, the tribal radio stations, there's two major ones that I'd heard in particular in South Dakota, Keeley, K-I-L-I, and Kini, K-I-N-I, on the... Um, Oglala and Sikanju Lakota reservations, kind of in the southern part of the state. And I was just, I was really interested in the role, just as a kind of observer passing through and, and tur- you know, turning the dial to this, the role that the radio seemed to play in terms of, um, you know, event announcements, a road might be flooded out um, at a certain point, and then you know, the music was kind of what you might expect from kind of community radio anywhere of a kind of freewheeling mix of country western, uh, powwow music, uh, 
hip hop, you know, all, all all sorts of things depending on who is who is on the air. But pretty pretty similar to community radio anywhere except with the indigenous sort of spin on things. Um, was that but, some of the first community radio that you were hearing? Well, I I had heard. Well, I I, I was a college radio DJ. I suspect probably all of you were. <laughs> Good um, to hear that. Yes, <laughs> and uh, so I had participated in that. So that's, this is another sort of <laughs> backstory of all this. We're, we'll we'll eventually get to the to the early twentieth century, but um, I became interested in the politics of radio. Um, while in college, and, and was even a music director and program director by the time I was a senior um, at WAMH in Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, nice. Of course, I would have asked that later. Very okay. good. <laughs> but <laughs> while I was working on the radio, I did the first kind of research paper that I had done in Native American history was about the occupation at Alcatraz Island in 1969, 1970, 71, um, just exactly 50 years ago right now. It was going on, and um, as part of that, uh, John Trudell, who is a Santee Dakota activist and poet, uh, ran a show every day um, for it was I think only fifteen minutes or thirty minutes from KPFK. Is that the Pacifica station in Berkeley? Is KPFA? KPFA. KPFA. Sorry, the KPFK is here. Um, So uh, called Radio Free Alcatraz, and so I was interested in that, and then. I simultaneously there was this thing going on uh, at our radio station where people at the county uh, jail would call the station. You may have kind of come across this uh, and like make a collect call to the radio station. And in the space where you say your name uh, for who's calling, they would say their song request and then hang up because they didn't have the money to um, to actually like we weren't going to accept a collect call, but they would just say like. You have received a call from the Hampshire County Correctional Institution. The the call is from, and then pl- play play Jimmy Jazz by the Clash, and then like they'd hang up, and so then you would play. And so this there was this sort of metaphor they, happening in my head of like a the, prison. They the call system to get yeah. a free call into a radio station because they were listening to the radio in the prison. We've talked about prison radio here on Radio Survivor in the past, so that's that's right up our alley. And I know. So, and I, I Alcatraz too was use a of prison. College radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like the fact that Alcatraz too was this prison that had been kind of hacked in some sense uh, for uh, the begin. What's sort of thought of? It's actually a few years into what's called the Red Power era. Um, but the the most the first really really visible uh, national action of the Red Power era, and that there was this radio component I, that was just sort of struck me and and this I was 20 years old at that point this was a long time ago but uh that, yeah, can, the can, politics... you, can you tell us about the red power just give yeah. us a gloss on what the red power era is because unfortunately I don't think this is often taught in schools yeah that's true it isn't um and it's start, starting to be a little more but the the red power era um is beginning in the 60s I think um a, a new generation of native american activists from all around the the country uh, began to converge and to sort of there had been Native American activism for generations in all sorts of ways um, in you know in the twenties it meant something else in the fifties it meant something else we'll, we'll go into some of this some of this in, in a minute but um, 
there was a sort of new stridence, you know, in in conversation with everything else that's happening, Black Power and and the women's movement and um, Chicano movement and all these kind of activists, this resurgence of a new generation of activists. And so there was a sort of new militancy that some of the first really visible things that happened in 1964 up in the Northwest were fish-ins, where uh, tribes who had treaty rights to fish uh, in certain rivers and and, um, other watersheds had been restricted by state game game wardens and things from from fishing in certain seasons and certain times and so they just went out and did it and kind of got people got arrested and things like that that was a that was maybe 64 65 that that started to get really um a little more attention um and then alcatraz was uh they and actually there was an early brief uh, occupation of alcatraz island in i think 1964 where because Alcatraz had become abandoned property, federal property, there somebody found a statute that said that in in some treaty that said, you know, if if there's abandoned federal property, it goes back to the tribes. Uh, um, So they said, well, sitting right out here in in San Francisco Bay, there's this abandoned federal property, let's go take it. Um, But the first one was a very brief and kind of quickly kind of, Shut down, and then in 1969 was the end of 1969 was the a bigger, more organized occupation that ended up lasting for more than a year and included this radio show through Pacifica. Yeah, now KPFA oh. continues to um, commemorate that occupation with uh, broadcasts every year. There's a sunrise ceremony, if I'm not mistaken, it's on or around Thanksgiving, and mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a it's a dawn broadcast that. Uh, that commemorates the occupation of Alcatraz. It's it's, all, it's almost like a reoccupation because they they broadcast live from the island. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a even even a little before Alcatraz, there was a program. I, I just came across this and, and um, working on a, an article on, on Native American radio. So I've been learning a little more about the the more recent history. That um, I in my dissertation, I really focused on the early early half of the 20th century, but um, that there was a program on the New York Pacifica station um, called Who Speaks for the Indian, in which some of these activists, um, a guy named Mel Tom, who is Paiute, uh, I'm trying to remember some, Vine Deloria, really famous scholar and activist, um, and, and others sort of were this was one of the first mainstream sort of radio, and I don't know if you consider Pacifica mainstream, but one of the first sort of um, radio appearances for where Native activists got time to speak for themselves, and this was probably in the '65 or so, and then Alcatraz, and then uh, the New York station it was WBAI. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, yeah. They did another show that has just recently been archived and digitized uh, called Seeing Red um, of Joy and Frank Harjo, who are Muscogee Creek, um, or not Joy Harjo, that's uh, Suzanne Harjo, and, uh, and Frank Frank Harjo. And it's at the uh, Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. They recently, as part of Suzanne Harjo's papers, they got all the tapes of these shows and they recently digitized them. Uh, through a grant, so they're up on the 
IAIA is the, the shorthand for that school uh, on their website on their archive. So there's Pacifica played a a really important role um, before there were um, true tribally run stations in the 60s and 70s. So that's kind of a and, and so this the Red Power movement continued. Uh, and of course, the most famous moment was the occupation at Wounded Knee in South Dakota, in my home state, in 1973. Um, that um, was a really long militarized standoff with the FBI and, and holding a holding a small federal building in, in Wounded Knee with the American Indian Movement. At this point, had this this organization had kind of become the main face of Red Power, and um, that's during the moment when. Marlon Brando declined his Oscar during that occupation, and it was it really put Native people back in the kind of wide public consciousness. Um, as I said, there had been activism going on for decades, um, centuries in some ways, um, but Native people continually kind of are, as you said, underrepresented, invisible. Um, in a lot of mainstream consciousness. And so uh, that that moment really kind of, they became front and center, you know, and, and there were sort of, there was the occupation of the BIA building, the Bureau of Indian Affairs building in Washington, D.C. in this time, and, and a lot of actions, and it just kind of was a real renaissance and, and had a lot of repercussions for decades down the road. So that's the Red Power movement in a not-so-small nutshell. Yeah. Um, well, but it, it helps us also kind of put it together with radio, right? Yeah. We can see how, how, it, how it came into your consciousness in part. I mean, there's the news of the day, of course, but as well access to, to the fact that it was, it, some of it was broadcast. I, I mm-hmm. wonder if it's... I want to jump around. I mean, it's not really jumping around. Josh Garrett Davis, you started telling us about uh, radio stations that you were listening to when you were younger in Oklahoma that were emanating from Indian country uh, reservations. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and and then you just referenced during your description of the Red Power movement that those radios uh, they weren't they haven't been around the whole time. When when did those stations come along, and how are they? Are is is everyone different, or is there a, a pattern across the country? Yeah, so the ones that I mentioned in South Dakota, where I grew up, um, they started in the late 70s and 19, early 80s. So in the wake of the Red Power Movement, there's a radio component. And in the early 1970s was when you started to have tribally run stations or maybe if not run literally by the tribal government, that they were connect, you know, no, owned or operated by Native community members in some form, whether through a nonprofit or, or whatever. So starting, there's all, there are a lot in Alaska, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Oklahoma, as well as the Dakotas. And it, it, it's kind of across the 1970s and 80s uh, as the, the, all of those stations kind of were founded. And many of them are still uh, in still in operation and still vitally important in places where um, broadband is, uh, you know, a lot of rural radio stations do not have reliable broadband at, you know, in people's homes. And so they can serve a really vital vital function or or even sometimes electricity or whatever. You'd still have a a battery operated radio or something that, that it serves as a sort of community network in the way that, you know, I assume that, 
your all, all of y'all's point of view about radio is like that it should serve the community and it's the most in, in some ways the most vital use of that that I can even imagine right so it of sounds radio. like yeah it sounds like makes the, me think the, of small town makes me think of small town radio stations too yeah. that are like community radio stations and also right. emergency broadcasters and they it, serve that purpose it sounds like that these radio stations were founded in the 70s and 80s around the same time that a lot of other community radio stations in um, across the United States uh, and it it was from what I'm hearing you say, Josh Garrett Davis, I'm assuming that it wasn't a um, – there wasn't any specific policy in the United States to to try to grow radio in in places where Native Americans lived. It's more that Native American people took advantage of community radios. Um, the, right. The, 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 I think the you, you all probably know better than I do about the federal government's sort of encouragement of community radio in the in – the, 60s and 70s more b- widespread and I think um, that was sympathetic to Native people but I, it was I think it was coming more from the ground up mm-hmm. uh, uh, that these stations were being founded and, and that there are local particularities to different places um, depending on how rural a certain place is. Um, Oklahoma is a very particular point where there are dozens of tribes within a relatively small uh, radius. And so as I was researching this, I, there, there's a book by Michael Keith that kind of goes into the history of those stations. I, I think he wrote it in the 1990s called Signals in the Air. And he, from what I can tell, he corresponded, this is kind of pre-email in a lot of ways, like corresponded with a, a people from a lot of these st- stations and got kind of their responses of how they were founded and, and um, what they how they worked in the communities. And so for my research, I was kind of thinking, well, where did this start? Like he's kind of done some of the work of t- telling that history. I need to kind of look for archives and things that I that I should work on for my dissertation right and and when did this start when and and sort of realizing what but what what about before the 70s what what is what are the stories from then and that became a much more manageable topic um except that I I ended up also talking about um sound recording um which it's not totally disconnected from radio um in some ways so I, I, yeah, I, just to, just to add there, we we did an episode of the show with Kyle Barnett, who who talked a lot about the intersections between right. the early recording industry and the early radio industry. So I appreciate that 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 was the topic of your dissertation because well, they're so much they were so intertwined. Maybe in, this is a great opportunity. We should jump right into it. Uh, Josh Garrett Davis, tell us about tell us about the earliest examples of Native American sound recordings. Uh, how okay. far back? Yeah, so the the history of Native American sound recordings is kind of deeply entwined, as you probably could imagine, with the field of anthropology. So in the eight, late 19th century, the field of anthropology is kind of growing into an academic field in some way. And there are a lot of mostly non-Native, there's a few interesting examples of Native anthropologists um, who were had this feeling that that native people and their cultures were going to disappear and this, and they had this fear about indigenous people around the world to some extent um and they needed to document these cultures 
and um, before they vanished, um, and they've called Native American people the vanishing race, and um, and so they fanned out across. There were people kind of from all sorts of from museums, from universities, and so on, to kind of going out and collecting material, culture, uh, stories, and, and songs, and, and stories via sound recording. So the the earliest. Um, the earliest surviving recordings are from 1890, uh, where uh, there was a community in Maine, Passamaquoddy community, uh, was visited by a guy from Harvard named Jesse Walter Fuchs, and he brought a phonograph, and they performed into the they performed stories and songs in, in the phonograph. Um, there are probably a couple of examples from earlier, though they haven't. The recordings haven't survived so far, or haven't been discovered so far. And how uh, were, were these on wax cylinders or wire mm-hmm. recordings? What were all the different types of ways that those early ethnographers were recording Native Americans? The Mostly wax cylinders. They were, um, the, the those old phonographs could be sort of spring-powered uh, rather than electrical-powered, so they traveled pretty well. And so even deep into the 20th century, some people, some anthropologists were still using wax cylinders because they traveled better than like electric, like the kind of what you picture Alan Lomax having this car with this giant disc recorder in the back. That didn't work that well out in the like rural reservations in the West and stuff. So these, those wax cylinders kind of continued to work for quite a while, but there are um, some of the earliest disc recordings on the Berliner label. Um, are from 1895, and they're kind of an odd example. Uh, they're commercial records, and it turns out they were actually recorded by a white anthropologist, this guy James Mooney. He had recorded wax cylinders on in Oklahoma. He, he spent a lot of time with people who were adherents of the ghost dance religion. Um, and contrary to a lot of people's Im- image, if you've learned about the ghost dance at all, um, you've probably learned about Lakota people um, pr- practicing the ghost dance and then being uh, slaughtered in mass at Wounded Knee in 1890, um, which did happen. Um, but there were also ghost dance adherents throughout uh, Indian country and a lot in Oklahoma, and it kind of... It, evolved kind of with Pentecostalism and, and is sort of part of in some ways still practiced in some versions in, in a way. So it didn't like die out in a, in a sense, but it was, it's a, it was kind of a part of um, a, adaptive native religions. And, and, and so James Mooney had spent a lot of time, especially with tribes in Oklahoma who had uh, ghost dance groups and he recorded some of these songs that they would compose as part of um, the ceremonies and things but there isn't a way to transfer those kind of bad wax cylinder recordings to a disc. So he, he learned them and sang them himself in a Mm. studio, um, (laughs) in, in Washington, DC. Um, so, you know, this, that whole phenomenon of ethnographic recording, um, who was who the ob- audience? I mean, yeah. not to interrupt, but who was the audience for the ethnographic recordings and then also for this, this mimic, mimicked commercial <laughs> disc that you're talking about? Good question. I mean, the, I think they just saw themselves as building an archive. Um, 
But one of the things that I try to suggest in in reading, trying to sort of discern why did these native singers participate, right? Why, why, you know, why share this stuff, right? And there's kind of the, the archives are always kind of incomplete and uh, often interpreted by the, by the anthropologist who's usually not native, but the, there is some indication that they too sought to create an archive, uh, that, that it was actually for the future. And I think in the anthropologist case, they saw it as the future of like posterity of science of like a record of human civilizations, right. For kind of some kind of vague future. But I think that the native people saw, uh, were more specific in that it was the, for their own descendants, right? Like that there, there's, um, there's a native Hawaiian scholar called, uh, named Noinoi Silva, who has a term of like genealogical consciousness that they, these early, uh, you know, this could be writers or, or singers or whoever are like speaking to future generations. And, um, that's something that has interested me most. And, and it's an interesting aspect of, um, because for all the kind of misapprehensions about the vanishing race, uh, 1900 was about the rock bottom for populations for a lot of tribes. And you, if you see the population losses across the 19th century, it's breathtaking, hmm. like 90% in some cases, right? And so um, to, I mean, it, there, a lot of knowledge was lost. I mean, there's no, there's no denying that. Yeah. Um, and populations did begin to rebound and were rebounding throughout the 20th century to the present and languages are coming back, but partly in, um, with using these archives, whether it's the sound recordings or the, um, or, or written things or photos or whatever, or material culture. So, um, I have, a, even though it's, in a way, the easiest thing is to kind of condemn these anthropologists because they're so grabby and like uh, obsessive about s- vacuuming up all of these cultures, you know. Um, but like at the pinning, same time, like pinning, you know, specimen, go ahead. Like like pinning a specimen yeah. in a display, it's dehumanizing. Right. Totally. And but at the same time, um, the. People actively participate. Native people actively participated, and they weren't they weren't uh, being duped. Like yeah. they were, they were smart people. You know, like they they um, they maybe in some cases they were coerced in some ways. Not not to say that that never happened, but but I think people that many people did actively kind of participate in building these archives, and and I think to some extent it was for their own communities in the future. Josh Garrett, and how did Josh Garrett Davis? You've described. Um, now we've gone back to the 1890s to talk yeah. about uh, uh, mostly white anthropologists recording Native American sounds, even though some Native American peoples were were participants, not just um, subjects. And mm-hmm. we, we began the conversation on today's episode talking about um, the Red Power era, which would be like the 1960s and 70s, where a lot of community radio stations uh, flowered. And those would be examples of Native peoples using the radio to talk to Native people. As opposed to what we had in the 1890s, um, was there is there something in the middle in the early years of radio where native people uh, were using their own voices with radio or recorded sounds? 
Yeah, it, exactly. That's what I, I wanted to ask the same question, Eric, about when, at what point, because I know from reading a little bit of your research, there is this point where very early on you have Native American people who are controlling the means of production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, great question. And I, I do, like, I, it's, I'm, I'm kind of passionate about because this that first half of the 20th century is doesn't get that much attention in in a lot of ways in the ways that the red power movement put native people in a public consciousness uh in a bigger way there those probably six decades before that um are often invisible to the to a broader audience even though obviously within communities themselves they know they were there um so what was happening in those years and it's hard as as you probably have talked to a lot of people who do research early radio, there's not great records of what was going on to almost start. You're finding these mentions of people in, in text sources or in, in other sources. Um, But there were some interesting examples. So um, in the twenties, as you know, radio starts to really take off. um, One of the, kind of powerful examples that that I came across um, that I was sort of told about from uh, the the Six Nations or Haudenosaunee in like upstate New York and Ontario, kind of Canadian American borderlands of the Northeast kind of a sort of he- someone from, one, a scholar from one of those communities had tipped me off to uh, a guy named Levi General who had a title uh, a sort of ceremonial title. And he was in this fight with the, both the Canadian and the U S government because they, they wanted to be able to cross freely across the border, um, because their lands were on both sides of the border. And, and they, he traveled to, at that point it was the league of nations, not the UN to Geneva, to the league of nations to on a, on a Haudenosaunee or sort of six nations passport. Um, and to try to lobby for this. And it was, the Native American people gained citizenship, U.S. citizenship in 1924. And he was kind of among those who said, no, we don't want it. We don't, we, we are citizens of our own nations. Like uh, we, we predate your nation and we are, you know, um, so he was, so he went um, as he's fighting with both governments. um, He went and broadcast a, a, big speech in, I think, 1924, 25 in Rochester, New York, um, and sort of saying, you know, I, I know that almost everyone listening to this, this is probably crossing both sides of the border, right? I know everyone that's listening to this is probably white. Um, and I want you to ask your politicians, like, how did they gain the right to govern people who are not citizens of their nation? They're citizens of their own nations. And how did they, you know, the tribal sovereignty, the advocating for tribal sovereignty, over the air to a mostly non-native audience in a way um, uh, to sort of preserve this. And, and I think the 20s is when you, this, these moves toward what, how are tribes actually going to negotiate this sovereignty? They know that they can't militarily resist the United States in, at this point, right? Like, like you're, it's a global, at this point, a global empire, uh, so how do you kind of carve out within the legal system, culturally, all these ways to kind of continue to exist as tribal entities, as governments, as kind of nations within 
within these nations, within Canada or the United States or Mexico or, or Australia or New Zealand, wherever, you know, uh, indigenous people are figuring out these sort of ways. And within the U.S. context, there's a lot of legal aspects to how that nationhood exists um, and how it, uh, and it's, people are still fighting for like more sovereignty in, in a lot of ways over their own lands, right? Um, so there's a couple of examples of that. And there's another example from the twenties of, um, the, the government was really trying to crack down on religions that they deemed to be kind of heathen or non-Christian, uh, and dances and types of dances that were, that they thought were dangerous to civilization in some way. Right. Um, and, um, there were there was a group of Hopi dancers from what's now Arizona, sort of, um, who went to the East Coast on a tour to sort of promote that they wanted to be able to continue these ceremonies, and they performed on the steps of the Capitol. But they also did radio. At least I know of at least one radio stop that they made where they sort of, I think, in Schenectady, New York, um, sort of you know it's making their case so so there's and then in in more of like a popular culture realm there were um a lot of per- native american performers who kind of played into and off of the stereotypical images of native people um there so there were a few within kind of vaudeville and um other type the remaining types of Wild West shows and all sorts of sort of performance venues, but they also released records and they also performed on the radio doing kind of popular music or somewhat traditional music or um, whatever. And and they, even though some of it seems sort of like stagey in a way now, but it, it, some of them were involved in activism as well. And, and they kind of did keep native people in a present day consciousness when a lot of people's ideas had consigned them to the past right so so in a way and there were at that same time there were really famous ballet dancers who were native american there were famous baseball players who were native american like it was a in the the sort of teens 20s even into the 30s there were sort of possibilities i think for for native people in popular culture to kind of play indian as this sort of saying is but but also sort of um, negotiate space within sort of what ma- modern American popular culture would be, um, and so that was, um, and I'm I'm relying a lot on this uh, a great scholar named Phil Deloria who has a book called Indians and in Unexpected Places um, about a lot of this moment. But there's a radio component to to this where there are it's a it's a mouthpiece, but again the the audience is presumed to be non-native, right? And, are these, it, and I assume these are non-native run stations too, because right. that's what I'm also wondering about. You mentioned that there were Native Americans who were releasing records. So when are some of these earliest, at what point do we see Native Americans who are deciding to run their own radio stations or, or record labels? And, um, and I'm curious, yeah, what, how that, when that switch occurs uh, as opposed to being, being in these white spaces for a be- mm-hmm. lack of a better term versus, mm-hmm. you know, carving out their own place in, 
in the media? Yeah, so so as far as I can tell, it's around the 1940s when when there starts to be um, some more opportunities. And it's still not owning a whole station. Um, but there are a few examples of small record labels um, in the 1940s. Um, and what would uh, there, their and what would they be releasing compared with maybe what um, when you when you saw Native American performers on some of these other labels before the forties, what um, what was the focus when when Native American peoples decided to create their own labels? Yeah, so the, I think it would be the what, for creating their own labels, they're recognizing that there's a Native audience for um, for. Native American music, right? Like, so there, throughout the early 20th century, especially in Oklahoma and then on the northern, and, and a kind of into New Mexico and then on the northern plains kind of separately, there's the development of like the powwow circuits of that are kind of intertribal communities that are created through people kind of going around to different powwows, especially in the summer. Um, and there's a lot of new there's new genres of music being created there's a whole genre in Oklahoma of these 49 songs that are kind of um that it's kind of like a country lyrics often in English uh like but very short but set in like a powwow um sort of frame so there's like uh some about an old car like there's a song called One-Eyed Ford that's an old classic from back then or like uh or like or stuff like Broken Heart kind of songs and things like that but it's in within like the, the powwow music kind of um idiom of, of you know with sort of drums and singing and stuff and but no no labels were releasing that no non-native labels were releasing records of that stuff so there's kind of and the record probably and it probably wasn't being played on the radio i mean this also mm-hmm. reminds me of another episode we did about how african-american preachers you know, would release records because they weren't necessarily getting radio airtime. Um, Preachers on Wax is a project yeah. of Lerone Martin, and and is that is that similar to what's going on here, where yeah. there's this material that is of interest to a community, but there's no way to hear it on the radio. Yeah, I think there was basically. I mean, the, the, we may still kind of come across other shows that existed in certain places. Um, but yeah, I think that the labels are realizing there's this need. And there was like kind of a whole home recording. There was kind of a blurry line between home recording and um, and selling those home recordings within the community and, or mass producing them on a very small kind of a la carte scale. Um, so there were a few people in Oklahoma doing this and a few people in New Mexico and I think in Chicago um, kind of releasing pretty small batch uh, records and then connected the, I mean, there's a kind of the kind of culmination of my dissertation narrative in a lot of ways is this radio show in Oklahoma called the Indians for Indians hour. And that is kind of, I, I think a pretty big turning point and um, kind of a signal moment. Um, in Native American radio, and so and hadn't 
been recognized, I don't think, as such. Like, hasn't gotten... But it's recently, the archive has been digitized. Uh, University of Oklahoma has recently digitized the archive. Um, they did an exhibit um, this last year. It kind of got um, closed early with COVID and, and everything. Mm. Um, but... Um, are we able to there. hear any of that material? Yeah, it's on, that it's on the Western History Collections website at the University of Oklahoma. Um, the archivist there, Lina Ortega, did a ton of work, did a book called The Indians for Indians Hour. Um, I wrote an article about it. So it's kind of like just now getting kind of, even though people in those communities kind of knew about this and it was on tape, it had been put on tape at, at a certain point. So people knew that their own ancestors were on the show. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little background of us first. Okay, yeah, let tell me, us. Well, let yeah, me we, we yeah. want to hear about the show. Yeah. What Josh, was on the yeah. show? Josh Garrett Davis, <laughs> you're, you're joining us on Raider Survivor today, and you're going to tell us now about this radio show, Indians... The Indians for Indians. Indians Hour. The Indians for Indians Hour, though its, te- it's technical name was just Indians for Indians, and it was only half an hour long. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he always said... So this was founded in 1941 by a guy named Don Whistler who is Sack and Fox. Uh, it's a tribe in Oklahoma. Uh, um, so, and he, he's, his sock, sock or Sack and Fox name was Keshkakash, and he would a- always sort of introduce the show coming in. He'd say, Aho Nikon, Keshkakash Anina, or something. So he's saying, hey, friends, it's Keshkakash is here. So kind of you, using the indigenous language. And he was kind of, um, well, I, I forgot to mention a, a major figure in Native American radio prior to this, who is <laughs> Will Rogers. Uh, Will Rogers was a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and occasionally did bring up uh, Native American issues in, the, in his huge fame, in especially in the 20s and 30s. You might, Josh so, Davis, it might be useful to let people know who aren't familiar with Will Rogers, who was so famous it's almost embarrassing to ask a question like this, but I think in the you know in the year twenty twenty one, it's it's useful <laughs> to ask you who was Will Rogers and why was he so famous. Okay, <laughs> short answer: Will Rogers was a huge star who kind of started off, I think, as a trick roper. He was the Cherokee cowboy um, in some Wild West shows. I think he performed in a Wild West show in South Africa for some time, but ended up you know making his way to Hollywood. Um, was had a I don't actually know how often the radio show was, but he was a huge national radio sensation. Was in movies, was you know released comedy records. I mean, I've heard someone say you know that he was kind of like the Daily Show, right? Like uh, he he was it was kind of like commenting on current events with this humorous, down to earth kind of feel, and had this down home Oklahoma. Uh, way of speaking and uh was a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and was did occasionally like he said sort of you know this is in the era of um like now a kind of anti-immigrant sentiment and so people were very much on who's 100% American and who's uh who may who is a Mayflower descendant and he's he said well my ancestors didn't come over on the Mayflower they met the boat even though not literally they didn't literally meet the boat they were um uh, further south than that, but but uh, you know he was sort of poking fun at nativism by saying, "Oh, who's the real native?" That's here, really right? funny because yeah. you know we got on off off on a tangent about Will Rogers, and we're going to get back to uh, native 
Natives for Natives radio hour. Yeah. That was a half an hour show. But what's amazing is I, I didn't know that Will Rogers uh, wasn't white until today. Yeah. So there well, you go. And I now you knew. Yeah, yeah exactly. So and that was obviously a huge part of his cultural identity, but it didn't make right. it into his uh, in, into his uh, short bio that I learned about in the <laughs> 1980s. Yeah, well, and he, you know, he died tragically young in a plane crash and, and um, sort of didn't get, I think maybe is partly why he isn't as widely remembered as he should be for how famous he was at the time. But anyway, to the reason I sort of brought him up was because Don Whistler, who was the host of Indians for Indians, had a kind of a Will Rogers-esque, like a really friendly, down-home, uh, welcoming host vibe and um he so i've listened to like so many of these shows um and so sort of drawing from that how many are there so it was a weekly show it was a weekly show and he recorded 1940s 1940s he recorded them on 16 inch discs mostly um, they were 15 minutes on each side. So halfway through the show, they'd flip it over and record on the other side. Wow. And the, and he didn't record every single show, but they recorded, there are over a hundred from when his tenure, um, and he actually passed away quite young in 1951. Um, but the show kept going and is actually still on the air today. We'll get to that. So these but, discs um, that they would record live in his studio would then be distributed to other radio stations and air throughout the country. No, no. They were no, so he, this was at the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma, and he basically got this one show at the, in the studio there, and it was a kind of community radio station in a sense. I mean, it was, a, it was, had a lot of educational programming, this sort of um, extension service, agricultural extension service type things, town hall of the air type, those types of programs, and then they had this, which were all like, you hear little bits of those on the beginning or end of the recording, and mm. it's so stilted, and then he, they, he comes on, he's like, Hey, we're we're ready to go, and um, so the, he was recording them. I I think that kind of for posterity. Again, it's like part of this tradition of recording. Um, he 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 mentions on on one show like we're we're putting this good Indian music on on discs to save for a long long time. Um, but he also used them to play play off. He didn't have a guest one week. He would play an old show. Um. And so basically what the, this was this show revolved around guests. So it's the it's such a cool model of uh community radio. Yeah. So there's so Tell us the host's name again. It's worth repeating. Don Whistler. So, and he among his other many other tra- uh resume lines or whatever you want to say, he was the first uh elected chief of the Sac and Fox tribe after they kind of reorganized the system of electing tribal councils in the 30s. In 1938, he became chief, so which he had to commute up a little ways to to from Norman, where the university is, to, to the reservation, to service chief, and he was until he, until he passed away. So for over 10 years, uh, he was doing that. Also, you have the powwow circuit going on. And so there are within... This is an AM station, of course, so it's a pretty big radius. Um, there were probably two dozen different tribes within that radius, um, and so he and, and it, it overlapped pretty clearly with the powwow circuit. So he is bringing in performers 
um, every week from different, but not just powwow groups. There's like, uh, there's church groups. Um, there's a whole tradition of, especially Kiowa Comanche, Apache, uh, Hymn, hymns in those languages of Christian hymns. There's also the Native American church or peyote religion uh, is kind of growing at that time. There's um, There were some kind of intertribal political meetings that would be happening and they would broadcast. Um, there... So... What were some of the things that really have struck you listening to all of these hours? Uh, what, what have been some of the exciting, interesting moments to you? Um, I, I really like he did announcements um, both. And he actually tried to keep the announcements on the break when they were flipping over the records because they weren't useful for him on the future shows. But you'd catch like, a, you know, 10 or 15 seconds of that before the, the disc flips over. Um and w- that's what's so struck me, striking to me was like the the communication between him and the audience. And so there's this striking, some striking things are like people would send a telegram to him the morning of the show and say, we're bringing a group next week if it's okay. And then he reads on the air, I just got this telegram. So our group next week is, you know, so-and-so is coming in. And they're going to be great, um, and and he could let them know if there was someone else booked or something, right? Like that. So so because like I don't think phone would have been necessarily reliable at that point. So he's getting a telegram or a postcard sometimes from a group saying, "Can we come in two weeks or whatever?" And so that like feedback loop of communicating that, as well as like events. Um, and then there are a few moments he kind of tried to stay out of politics because, especially you know, tribal politics, like within a tribe, like just want, he, I think they just wanted to stay out of that. Like you didn't want to get in the middle of like a, an election, but, but the, around that same time was the national Congress of American Indians, which is still the sort of major intertribal activist group or organization, uh, nationally. He, they were founded around then. So he would do announcements for them of like, you know what, there's this dangerous bill in Congress that's going to take away our sovereignty in some way. Right. Right. To your senators, right now uh send a postcard here's the address and and stuff like that um and i guess the other striking thing um is the the role of this show in the boarding school system and so that's that's a big part of new american history in the early 20th century i haven't gotten to which is there was a massive system of removing children from their families and taking them to boarding schools um sometimes really far from home and which is is um, genocide Yes, yes. <laughs> and um, and sort of, you know, there was, there, and, and literally often, you know, many, many students died at these schools, especially in the early, um, you know, they, the first ones are in the 1870s and then go up to, well, there are still some, somebody, but the, these schools begin to transform to become something, um, more positive sometimes in, in, um, in some people's lives. I mean, that, um, in the thirties, there started to be some more native teachers within these schools. Um, there started to be kind of, instead of trying to erase culture to 
try to encourage language or well it took a while it's taken a while for it sounds language to be a it's very complicated but but anyway for all the different situations under which these students were in these schools by the 1940s which weren't quite as dire as they had been earlier but still had some huge terrible aspects to say that's putting it so mildly, I, I probably it's yeah. Like but we're offensive. talking about the Sorry. radios and how we're talking about the radio. Okay, so there's students listening to this in 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 a system that was at least initially set up to totally erase their cultures. There's students listening every week at school to this program, and in fact, they start to there started to be kind of Indian clubs within these schools that would do singing, and they would come and travel a hundred miles to be on this radio show, um, and they would be hearing on other broadcasts from elders from from maybe their own tribe or another tribe sort of speaking and singing over the air. So that sort of way that it was somewhat hopefully overcoming in some ways that the the providing um, that that window to their cultures yeah. Yeah. that's an amazing yeah. use of radio and you think about that across so many situations where somebody might feel so alone but then hear something on the radio that allows them to feel like they're part of a community. Well, and what's mo- what's very exciting to me listening to you talk about the history of Josh Garrett Davis um, of this radio program, uh, <coughs> which was, again, tell me the name and the host. Indians for Indians with Don Whistler. That this show in the 1940s sounds to me like community radio, which hadn't been invented yet. Community radio, uh, as I understand it, in the United States comes along a decade later. And and this sounds like it, this sounds like to me like community radio like like a big a big tent of uh, of, of of you know folding folding a lot of different cultures around you know <laughs> wrapping your arms around a lot of cultures that have a common mm-hmm. a common goal and and talking into microphones to share that with with the with an audience the audience is what matters most and then as well as playing records like the sound of a community was being broadcast with this show. And that the audience was, you know, they were performers, right? Like that the, it was like that the audience and the performers and the, the, the relationship it had to the real, to real world, or it is real world, but to uh, in the flesh events and to other forms of community. Um, and, and so, and it, then, you know, after it, he passed away kind of suddenly of a heart attack in, in, in 1951, it continued um, kind of run through the universities. It, they, I think it was called the Sequoia Club. Um, and, and in fact, uh, at least one um, student who, who became a major red power activist in the 60s was host for, for some time at the University of Oklahoma. So... Uh, named Clyde Warrior, so he, he, that's like um, that that connection to that next generation, um, and where sort of Don Whistler's generation, the the activists were um, more, you know, the the it was the forties and fifties. It was much more like buttoned up a little bit, you know, or or sort of like um, the the there was that sort of cultural propriety or something, you know, that sort of, um, it's good church going folk. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, another thing I wanted to mention is like they, he always cooked for 
the group that was performing at his house beforehand, right? So they had he like I guess there he just had to make a huge pot of soup or whatever. And this sometimes there'd be like thirty people in the studio, right, on on a given performance. It'd be a huge group uh, coming in and singing. So he'd ha- he'd have fe- he had to feed thirty people at his house or something, you know, before the show. So there's this sort of exchange and the, these, you know, within a lot of um, communities uh, throughout Native America, actually, the there's sort of different forms of sort of giveaway ceremonies and hospitality um, is super important in that way and and as a way of building community and giving gifts and and feeding people and so on. So um, this was kind of all tied up into that and and I think kind of forms this kind of early model. And and yeah, that the form of the community radio that you'd hear on those other shows were like, I think I, I went and looked at the, their, that station's filings for through the FCC at the National Archives, and um, to be like, did they? Did this station? This is the university station. Did they like real uh, realize how amazing this show was? Right? Like, were they? And and they didn't. They didn't highlight it at all. They were like the, these, um, the shows that they would highlight in their FCC showing their kind of public service were like, we do Town Hall of the Air, where men of great expertise on these topics will come and rationally debate and whatever, you know, it's sort of this, uh, that was the the idea of kind of community public service radio, um, in that sense, which is, has its value too, but, but it wasn't really community, you know, community rooted. It's these like, well, it's not what that, it's not what that radio station is going to be remembered for (laughs) a hundred years from now. Like, it sounds to me like this is their legacies. This show is the most important thing. Well, and it's making me think, I don't know if I know of any other radio show that has been on the air since 1941. So, I mean, this is potentially the longest running radio show. Did you say it was still on the air? Yeah, so they, in the 1970s, I think, the station, I I forget, they were kind of translated, they transferred it to a commercial station, and then they made the show, instead of being on like Tuesday afternoons, it it became on like Sunday morning or Saturday morning when those kind of public service, but at some point in, I think the 80s, it, it moved to, now it's a, it's a more, it's on an FM station in southwestern Oklahoma, and it's a smaller Radius, it's about four or five tribes are in that area, and it's Indian Springs is on now. It's like a country station. It's three hours. Uh, it's and it's kind of it's sponsored by the Comanche Nation, um, and the host is a guy named Edmund Masit, who who is Comanche, and he he kind of like hosts this three hour show once a week. But it, it's it's not quite that like a uh, that huge radius sure. and the, the bigger community, but it That's is okay. still going. It's yeah, very exciting. <laughs> it's still so going. We're in the we're in the podcast now, so we can. We can uh, well, yeah, and I think relax, but it, it probably only the only rival is the Grand Old Opry. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. which which began airing on the radio in the 1930s, mm-hmm. oh. and continues to this day. Um, but that that would probably be the only real rival. Um, wow. I like that. That's a good argument. But we were what what Jennifer yeah. what, what's in Jennifer's yeah, mind? I think is that we we often, especially because of Jennifer's hard work like to swat down claims of firsts on radio survivor like because jennifer has learned that there are numerous college radio stations that claim to be the first college radio station numerous college radio stations that claim to be the first 
time that women's voices were heard on the air. Uh, numerous college radio stations that claim to be the first to go on the air uh, on the web. And uh, right. so, but this, I made that argument halfway halfway back that uh, this does sound like a very early claim to being a, a community radio program with a large mm-hmm. national well, profile. Well, you're probably I mean, pushing it there. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm just going gonna, gonna to weigh in and say you're well, probably pushing college, it there. I'm willing it's to college push. radio. It's on right. a college radio station, which is, like, granted mm-hmm. more of an educational radio station, but... Um, there were a lot know. of... The, the, not a lot, but... but college right, radio but, was doing community radio starting yeah, in the 20s. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, was, and at this time, yeah. there were also these university stations, like the this in Oklahoma, which was not a college station per se, right? As far as I, I know of it, it, it wasn't a station where a student might obtain themselves a a, uh, a show. Um it wasn't student radio, I guess, and but you know you had similar more station. educationally oriented radio, right? Like, and, and these, like these were not uncommon. Land grant stations mm-hmm. often had yeah, that that's what school of the air, mm-hmm. WILL uh, AM, and at, at Urbana uh, at University of Illinois is one such station, and and so such types of programs like this. I mean, this is truly unique in in its outlook. So I don't wish to undermine um, its standing whatsoever, but I think uh, thinking about community focused <laughs> programming right these programs existed also on commercial radio mm-hmm. uh on mm-hmm. and off i mean again the records are, are rough to have because as josh pointed out they weren't necessarily transcribed at any point um we have to go on you know records that may be uh either if you're lucky enough to go to the national archives and look up the the issues and mm-hmm. programming statements filed with the with the FCC <laughs> or we find them in newspaper record whatever i mean this sort of style of programming is kind of extant since the early sure. days of, of radio I think, um, yeah. but I, they don't necessarily take still- over but we can still be excited, Eric. Yeah, that so. it's early. Yeah, yeah that's all. Excited. I'm not trying to undermine it. I'm just kind of <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm anticipating the emails right now. Oh, thank you. I know. And <laughs> but I, I, I like to make thank wild you, claims, and yeah. I'm always happy when, when Paul and Jennifer push back. And yeah, and I, I, d- I, like, I don't like the kind of first things either. So I, I like the I like just to be, you know, it's what matters is it's, you know, the, what happened over its, over its long tenure and what is still happening and, and sort of the the energy of it and the the impact I think it had. Um, and, um, and I do think it's like a transformational model that is, um, great. I mean, yeah, I did, I was trying to look up like, what's the, what are the analogous situations like for African-American radio or something? And I, I, there's that, there's a book about black appeal radio in Chicago. I forget the author's name. Um, but in like kind of after the great migration, um, it, these were on commercial stations, right? There's enough mm-hmm. of a population that there's it's worth it for commercial stations to have, you know, well, advertisers and, appealing to black they consumers. Were, yeah, or they were owned, you know, yeah. they, they were black owned. I mean, this is the thing that that I think gets lost in the shuffle is that there has been uh, diversity in radio ownership that has been really squeezed out in the years since the uh, last Telecommunications Act, mm-hmm. and, you know, and that radio. You know, it was not uncommon to have a radio station that was commercial, but also serving small communities, small broadcast radiuses, you know, and there was actually kind of a flourishing of um, diversely owned radio stations in the 70s and 80s. So the period that, Josh, that mm-hmm. you sort of noted when that's when a lot of um, 
native stations, native owned stations went on the air and they are both commercial and non-commercial. So like some are, are, you know, community radio stations. Uh, many participate with the national federation of community broadcasters. Others mm-hmm. are commercial stations. Um, and I want to put in a pitch because, uh, the BBC released a, a great documentary on radio, on community radio for uh, World Radio Day that came out of, uh, last week. Oh, cool. Um, and it was produced by David Gorin, friend of the show. Um, well, I posted about it at radiosurvivor.com, so we can definitely link to that. And it profiled five uh, community stations uh, around the globe, and one of which is uh, KTNN uh, in mm-hmm. Arizona, which is uh, the voice of, of the Navajo Nation. Um they claim to have gotten the last clear channel 50 watt AM radio, 50,000 watt AM radio licenses. Oh, wow. And that was awarded in 1986. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, and, and it is owned, you know, uh, it, I, I, I'm not entirely sure who owns it, but it serves, you know, obviously serves uh, the Navajo nation principally in the Navajo language. Yeah. I think it's, you have to, I think the DJs, are required to only I've, okay. I've driven through there and, yeah. and listen and i think you're from what i've heard they'll, they'll be playing like taylor swift or whatever but the, when the djs are talking as well as all all sorts of things but you know it, the, like whatever they're playing the djs are only speaking in navajo yeah and and so there's clips of, of the station and they talk to a, a dj uh, you know who's talking about sort of especially how the station is serving at this time as covid is you know mm-hmm. ravaging um, you know, the folks of that community as it is around around the country and around the world. But I, I really highly recommend listening in. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderfully produced documentary. But, but just noting how that station went on the air in 1986 with a commercial license on the AM band. But, you know, because with the 50,000 watt transmitter on the AM band, you can cover multiple states. Yeah. Right. It, it had a tremendous broadcast range and can really tie... Uh, communities together and it's but yet you know stations that uh, might have been you know probably maybe possibly not on a uh, owned by a, a, a tribal entity or possibly not necessarily broadcasting from within uh, tribal lands uh, I, you know I don't have any number off the top of my head but you know many of them have been lost uh, through consolidation in the times uh, since 1996 uh, when all the ownership limits uh, were, 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 were for all intents and purposes lifted in, in radio that's really interesting because um, we've talked about ownership diversity often on our episodes with Christopher Terry when we're talking about FCC media policy and I We've all. I have all. In my mind, when we're talking about the ownership diversity, I think of women first. We know that women own less stations than they used to, based on these metrics. And I also always think of uh, black-owned stations. And uh, today's the day where I'm reminded that we're also talking about Native American-owned stations. Mm-hmm. That there there used to be more uh, that that grew out of this. Uh, yeah, and and, I mean, era. low power FM was, has turned out to be uh, 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 flourishing there, Josh. Yeah. I don't know if you have much. Yeah, to say I, about it was that. interesting. Like, I was just reading. There's this really good book I've just been reading called ne- "Network Sovereignty" about broadband in um, Native America, hmm. and she talks to um, a low power station um, in southern Arizona of Yaki Pasqua Yaki community. But it's and it's really interesting now because these. Uh, I mean, across the 20th century, these communities are very diasporic and, and like there'll be people living in Phoenix and there'll be people living here in L.A. And there'll be, you know, and so the ways that the kind of on the ground and webcasting combination is really useful, too. 
um, that like terrestrial radio plus a uh, plus a webcast can be really useful if you have if you have community members living either sometimes or all the time in somewhere or like with Indians for Indians I think um, there was they have a big Facebook group and and they I think they put it up or I don't know how you stream it I forget whether it's on the station's website or whatever but they will be. The, there's like people serving in the military in Afghanistan who hmm. will listen to the radio from back home and then write on the Facebook group and like the, it's a it kind of continues that nice. tradition with like the telegram the telegram sent to the station you know exactly. and stuff so it's tell, I have it's, tell I have like sort of the hold on oh, wait can tell I ask, us, tell us about that book again though the book that you just held up oh yeah and then this Jennifer, is by marisa elena duarte and it's called network sovereignty thank you uh building the internet across indian country so we'll put that in the show notes yeah so that it's a and it kind of talks about uh, various iterations of broadband being built and 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 the ways that um it, you know with with these native american history of technology questions it's like how how do how do people in native communities kind of transform the medium or like tr- to meet their own needs right like i think that the indians for indians hour is a really good example of like that way of combining like recording these on 16 inch discs for either replay or for archival purposes the the communication through the announcements and the kind of sort of community oriented Thing is a kind of very different use of radio, which is, you know, just this transmitter antenna. It's very different than the program that's on before or after it. And same, I think, can happen with broadband of like, or gaming or whatever, like the the communication that can happen through these technologies can be very different depending on your kind of use of them and your intentions and your cultural kind of background and and what how you're using it. and that's not only for native people but it could be for all sorts of um reasons it could be for you know disability issues or whatever you know there's all these different ways that you can kind of bend technology to to your needs um i wanted to ask a question in sort of a different direction we've been talking about some of these broader broadband and the internet and high wattage stations um, we've had some conversations on the show before about uh, some Native peoples talk about how the airwaves shouldn't actually be owned. And so I'm curious about pirate radio and um, if if you have examples or know about ways that, that Native Americans might be doing pirate broadcasts mm. without licenses. I, yeah, I don't, I haven't come across it. And again, the present... This, everything that's going on across the present, like, you know, there are so many amazing Native podcasts, but I don't know them all. And I don't, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm an authority on any of that. I, I, like, I, I, there's just so much. and I, But I haven't actually heard of any. But I have been, I, I remember um, someone bringing this up, and I haven't found a, a kind of published argument in this realm, but I, of, like, basically that a lot of the treaties that tribes signed would included you know mineral rights or things to like that when that treaty was signed no one knew that uranium was you know useful for a certain for (laughs) nuclear energy or whatever but it the tribe still retains the right to the uranium on their on their lands right so 
wouldn't that be the same for the airwaves? Um, that their sovereign territory would include not only the minerals in the ground and the water that runs through and whatever, but that it, and, and but the airwaves. And then there's been a recent uh, legal effort of some tribes in Northern California um, to try to get legal personhood for the river, for the Klamath River. And like, what might, what might that, that sort of way of thinking and, and whether it's, becomes law or not but that what would that mean to to say because the air airwaves are natural resources in that sense right like so so what would it mean to sort of indigenize them in that in that way of so i don't know who I, i've I, only kind of gathered inklings of people talking yeah. about this kind of thing but I, it would be interesting to see where that conversation goes in the next uh decade and um, i think we we had some conversation about it in the context of canada yeah that was um, it was like three years ago we had a guest on who wasn't talking about Native American radio, but then dropped that little nugget right into our... Into our We're talking yeah. about First Nations in, in Canada, was it? Yeah, mm-hmm. and that the airwaves, you know, that it's ridiculous actually to talk about ownership of the airwaves. That's just, mm-hmm. it's a f- completely, you know, that concept is not even square. Yeah, but that, really. that, and that there were actually, um, I don't remember who our guest was, and I don't remember their... This might have been Amanda Don Christie. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, uh, Amanda Don Christie was a sound artist who does a lot of, um, uh, what do we call it, broadcast arts, transmission arts, Mm -hmm. that was on an episode, and we can put a link in the show notes. And yes, you're probably right. Amanda Don Christie did mention that that there was a... um, Which is probably a big reason why we have you on the show today, because Uh um, Josh, because ever since that episode, I've been wanting to... Right. That was to the, talk more about native indigenous radio. So, yeah, we thank just, you. <laughs> it was just half a sentence that Amanda Dungrissy told us on that podcast that that there were native native peoples who who their in, yeah their their conception of their own sovereignty was that they had every right to to put radio stations on their airwaves and didn't need to get mm-hmm. licenses from somebody else's right. government. <laughs> right. Well, I, I guess maybe how I, uh, I don't know. You you all might know more about this than I do, but how like the Zapatista movement is used radio um, in Chiapas uh, could be maybe a slightly different but adjacent kind of. Yeah, um, I only know the tiniest bit, so I just I, I will speak at the highest, most abstract level, so that I, I you know in that throughout Latin America uh, a number of of radio of uh, activists have, have have employed radio that i think to call it pirate would be the wrong uh, because in, in part pirate sort of only if you presumes like pirate. something has been is uh, but on uh, unstate authorized radio yeah. mm-hmm. um you know for for the purpose of of communication and community radio and as we've learned you know there in places like like argentina you know a community radio law was passed but never actually enacted by by the state regulator, and and so folks sort of essentially uh, enacted um, civil disobedience, saying, "Well, we've the law has been passed; we're going to put stations on the air anyway." And you know, and and that is not uncommon, and and many of which, yeah, are are, are, in, are specifically intended to uh, and 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 uh, used by indigenous communities, uh, you know, who are facing 
all sorts of environmental destruction and and um, you know intense state and and uh, extra legal oppressions. Yeah, and Radio Survivor did an episode all about that. We um, I'll have a I'll I'll dig up the episode number and the link. That was an early episode where we interviewed a a reporter who'd done a lot of journalism about these radio stations in Argentina and how they were um, how they were founded and operated as as these um very special very very special radio stations that was a good episode to remember it's a, a while back lots Damn. of lots of threads lots of links yeah. well <laughs> maybe one final question for you josh i'm curious we haven't talked about your work at the autry museum at all but yeah. do you have um do you have some radio tell, exhibits tell us, there tell in the us works josh's, <laughs> tell us josh's job title at the at the oh museum. yeah do you want to know my full job title yes I am the Gamble Associate Curator of Western History, Popular Culture, and Firearms at the Autry Museum. It is the longest title, I think, of and, anybody at the museum. And I, I grew up friend. in Southern California, so I knew that place as the Cowboy Museum. Yeah. Uh, but that's not, that's not entirely accurate. But it is... It is no, no, yeah. It's, it's something we've, we are constantly sort of working with and against and, and sort of in, in all sorts of... What I, I think of as productive and fun ways, but... Um, can you know um we don't have any specific exhibitions on radio but i think that would be fun i i am going to do uh in a few years uh an exhibition related to my dissertation uh about native sound media and and i'm not sure how much it will focus on music versus kind of media politics um because i don't know if media politics like lends itself as well to like to fun exhibit form as music might, but but we'll see how it evolves. I don't, um, but we uh, in a sort of in two thousand three, the Autry merged with the Southwest Museum, uh, which is another museum in Los Angeles, actually the first, the oldest museum in Los Angeles, and whose collections are primarily Native American. Um, so we actually have the big second biggest Native American collection after the NMAI, the National Museum of the American Indian, the Smithsonian. Um. And so that has become, you know, from from this origin as a cowboy museum, as you say, to we have uh, had since 2012 our, our the first native director of the museum. He's actually retiring this year, but um, Rick West has been been uh, he was the first director of the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian, and then kind of came out of retirement to kind of help guide the Autry in, in this. Um, and so we have people on our curatorial staff and our other parts of our staff who have more expertise than I've talked to you all for an hour about Native American history, but there are people that I work with who are way more knowledgeable than I am and uh, have our rooted in communities and all sorts of things. Um, but we work on all sorts of pro- projects that range from, yes, Gene Autry to Los Angeles history to Native America to whatever. So it's a, it's a fascinating mix um, and always interesting. I think, um, I, mean, to- I think Radio Survivor here, we're very excited about this notion that you can uh, get some, uh, some sound, some archival sounds in front of uh, young people's ears when they're allowed back inside of museums yeah. uh, anytime now. Um, it's, we'd love, that's our vote. Our vote is that there's a good exhibit in the future of, uh, of the the sorts of things you've been telling us about, you know, the sound of American radio. 
And are you doing online programs right now? Yeah, we have. And actually, it's funny you mentioned this because I should have plugged this earlier, but I guess we didn't. We're get still to on it, the podcast. We're still on the podcast. Um, one really interesting and unique uh, initiative that the Autry has is we have the Native Voices Theater Company, um, which is like it's kind of rare and an unusual thing to have a theater company within a museum. <laughs> it just kind of happened. It's one of those things that happen, and it's yeah. still going, and it's great. Um, and because of COVID, they, they do, they're like one of the only equity, like union theater companies that's all Native American kind of playwrights, you know, directors, cast, um, How exciting. and so on. And this year, because of COVID, they can't really do a play. And so they're doing a radio play uh, called Super Indian. Well, maybe we can put this in the, the link in the yes. in Maybe we could do link. an entire episode it's, about Super Indian. I know. Okay. So that's a great idea. Um, I'll connect you with them if you yes, want. Please. Just, okay. yeah, yeah, I think that that's it. Yeah. I think that we really we really ought to shine a light there. Any, when are so they, it's, when it's are they in doing April. it? That's coming out in April. Um, and so that is, it's a playwright named uh, Aragon Star. And so this is actually the sequel. They did one uh, a radio play with her t- uh, 10 years ago, maybe. Cool. Um, and it just... Sounds like a good COVID solution, right? For for uh, for a theater company. So um, I I don't know much about the development process so far, but I I, I bet they would love to, someone there would love to talk to you. Oh, so even if they don't <laughs> want to talk to us, we're gonna I know we're yeah gonna, you're gonna tell them how enthusiastic we are. We love radio radio drama. Yeah, so. and the yeah. whole and that that notion of of um, people using the pandemic times to make more radio because they forgot that that was an option or. Now that they're forced to, that's that's been on, that's been on our radar all year. Uh huh. So that's exciting. That's great. Yeah, and and um, on another another kind of interesting, like totally different angle is that we, I know in non-COVID times, what we we've done this collaboration with SAG-AFTRA, the Union Actors Union, um, where they'll do these old-time radio reenactments, kind of of old radio dramas. Um, and they do them at different points in, throughout the year, but I think they usually do some sort of westerny one mm-hmm. uh, it, with with SAG actors. Oh my gosh! How um, do you? And they do it live. People come to the theater usually and and do this do live. Do you find it, scripts that are good, or do you fix scripts that are <laughs> racist? I'm not sure. I, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know how they do. I, I good don't question. know how they swing that, but I think they might. I think they they must find scripts that are good, but yeah. they might fix them. They might fix them. But there, it's there a, had to be some lefty writers who yeah didn't blow it when it came to yeah. Western Western narratives about Native Americans written in the age exactly. of, golden age of radio when when racism was uh, more mainstream. Yeah. Well, and yeah. often there are even little at, at the radio station where I volunteer. I, I, we're starting to do some practice on radio dramas, and so we've been reading old scripts, and um, and people have definitely been making edits to them. Yeah, I, should, yeah. I will say, gender, <laughs> gender and race. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's a. Do you do you all know that there's like a? I, I haven't actually been up there in person, but I need to. The Thousand Oaks like city library here in like outer uh, suburbia in LA um, has like a whole archive of radio scripts that I've kind of been curious about checking out someday. Oh yeah. You need to check that out and report back to us. I think. Okay. 
That's wonderful. <laughs> well, Josh Garrett Davis, thank you so much for joining us on the show and the podcast today. Well, no, it's been it's been my pleasure. I'm I'm uh, thrilled to get to talk to you all and learn as much from you, I think, as as you from me, because uh, I have gotten to dip into some radio history, but then you know there's so much other thing, so much other stuff going on that some I really appreciate your expertise too. So it's really great to talk to you all. Our thanks to our guest today on Radio Survivor, Josh Garrett Davis, who is the author of the book Dances, Proving Up on the Great Plains, published in 2012, as well as a collection of essays, uh, critical essays and riffs, What is a Western Region Genre Imagination from 2019. Josh Garrett Davis is also uh, working on a history of American Indian engagements with recording and radio technologies between 1890 and 1870, which was the topic of our interview today on Radio Survivor. Uh, he's also the associate curator at the Autry Museum of the American West in Los Angeles, the museum which I erroneously, cynically called the Cowboy Museum because uh, that's what my grandma called it in in the 90s. But it's it's so much more than that. And I can't wait to go back. Uh, can't wait to go back to the museum uh, soon, I hope. Uh, anyway, woo, distracting. Uh, Josh is also a member of the collective M12 Studio, which explores culture and art in rural places. My name is Eric Klein. With me today on the program were Paul Reese Mendel and Jennifer Waits. Jennifer Waits produced today's episode, which means she booked Josh Garrett Davis, did the research Uh, wrote down the questions and generally worked on everything that happened before we connected with Josh on the line. I work on uh, Radio Survivor as the editor, so any complaints regarding (laughs) that work can be directed uh, to me. Email us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Com, where you can also send compliments to me uh, for editing today's episode. Our show airs each week uh, both on the internet as a podcast, which you can hear always for free wherever you subscribe to Time Shifted Radio, which is how I snarkily refer to podcasts these days. Uh, radio Survivor is online on all those apps that podcasts live on, as well as the website radiosurvivor.com. The program also airs each week on radio stations across the country, community radio stations, college radio stations, all sorts of radio stations, and that service is provided for free at zero cost to radio stations. And um, you can find out more going to our affiliates page if you know of a radio station that um, would benefit or enjoy airing these shows, you can check us out and get in touch. It's all on our website, radiosurvivor.com. Those episodes that air on the radio are shorter than the podcast, and they are edited for radio. I do that work. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more, you can go to radiosurvivor.com. Of course, it's been a while since I mentioned on the credits of the podcast that Radio Survivor is also a website where writing (laughs) takes place. We're not just a radio show. It's also a place where articles are written about radio, culture, history, community radio, college radio. Jennifer Waits uh, in the before times would go on 
tours of radio stations across the nation and won't it be a fascinating and hopeful time when Jennifer is able to return to that work uh, touring radio stations visiting them uh, uh, <laughs> in person to to find out from the people that that work at that radio station what they're what they're working with what they do uh, to see it with her own eyes and to take photographs and write about it for you at radio survivor com as well as as make radio uh that was something that was was happening often uh in the years prior to 2020 show notes for everything that we discussed today many many show notes today including links to the previous episodes which we referenced of radio survivor as well as uh josh garrett davis's work are online at radiosurvivor.com today's episode is number 200 and 86 well we'll be we will be back next week uh our plan is to speak with our friend becky myers who runs the radio station in sitka alaska we last spoke with becky oh almost a year ago uh i think it would be more accurate to say 11 months ago at the beginning weeks of the coronavirus pandemic uh, becky explained to us uh, how her radio station was adapting how Alaska and her community was adapting to the beginning of the pandemic. I'm looking forward to catching up with Becky uh, to find out both how the year went as well as how she is strategizing for uh, the years to the year to come this uh, next, especially, you know, we, we, we can definitely um, say with some amount of certainty that the next six months uh, will still be, uh, you know, part of the pandemic the global pandemic will be continuing but in a new and different every every uh the, we're, we're entering a new phase of the pandemic you know and so i'm looking forward to that conversation uh i'm focused on asking about how volunteers are being welcomed back into stations even if uh, the physical requirements and health and safety requirements of having physical volunteers in the station has changed. Um, you know, to me, what makes radio stations that I love great, the thing that brought me into the world of radio was how community radio was an open workplace where volunteers were welcome and integrated into the fabric of a real radio station but um you know you know even even paying work even professionally run radio stations and yet there was an openness that was not available at other kinds of stations like an npr affiliate station um that kind of openness to my mind um was one of the radio tragedies of the covid pandemic right you had to close your station down um physically in order to be safe how do you how do you what is the next step to 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 bring back people (laughs) that's what we're going to be talking with becky about and i think uh in the in the weeks to come i i plan to reach out to the other people who ran radio stations that we spoke with at the beginning of the pandemic a series of episodes that i'm very proud of now as um weird little documents of history um, I'd like to find out how how those radio station uh, station managers and other leaders at these stations are doing. 
All of this is to say, this long-winded outro, is that if you also know of uh, a station that deserves some attention or a individual at a station who has stories to tell, please do reach out to us and let us know. We are always open to those ideas, and we actually receive them graciously and voraciously. It's always wonderful to hear from our listeners on any of their opinions, including uh, show pitches and uh, show topic ideas. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com is our email address. Well, on behalf of Paul Reese Mendel, Jennifer Waits, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>